Well, good morning. I think uh, the words of that song that we just sang uh, are pretty fitting going into the passage that we're going to look at today. Um, And there's a sense that really for all of us that we're all broken. Uh, That we all have like you know, that thing or those things in our lives uh, before we come to Christ, that that when we do come to Christ as Christ followers, that those are the things that that God is working on. Those and, I mean, obviously many more, thousands probably of things in our lives that God is shaping us and and changing us in different areas. We're returning to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 20 verses this morning. Um, not in my notes, but often in my comments are this ideas that uh, growing up in, in Sunday school, that, uh, that the teacher that I used to have, Don Bo's sister, Dolores Crisp, used to use the old flannel graphs. Um, interestingly enough, somebody presented me with a little gift. Don't worry, it's not going to be a Sunday school lesson. But I do have all the components to a flannel graph for Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And I only want to dig into the bag, because if you know this story at all, you know that it gets pretty wild right from the get-go. So I'm looking, now oh, there's the crowd. Ah, oh, we'll just go ahead and throw these guys up. They might as well join us for church, right? There's the crowd. Let's see, oh, here's where it gets tricky. Some tombs. I don't know who that guy is. We'll just put him over there. Here's a couple more dudes. Maybe the disciples. Hard to say. They're not labeled, so I'm just like throwing people up on flannel. But you notice how the flannel, it all works. Okay, here we go. There's water in this story. There's, uh... I really have no clue what that is. This is just like being in fourth grade. I really have no idea what's going on. There's the pigs. They're down towards the end of the story. Here's the guy I'm looking for. Maybe I'll just bring this out so everybody gets a closer look. See this guy? Everybody see that? Doesn't look too cool, does he, Josiah? That's what I looked like at the end of the Kansas State-Alabama game yesterday. Because I was cheering for Kansas State. Because we have a friend that plays at Kansas State. And uh, they got smacked pretty hard by Alabama in the Sugar Bowl. Yesterday was not a fo- good football day. We won't talk about it. There we go. There's your flannel graph. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Let's close in prayer. We'll get on out of here. No, uh, <coughs> Hannah, who's, I don't think she's here today. No, she's not here. But she thought she would play a funny trick on me. And I'm, she's not here to receive the comeback, but we're in Mark chapter 5. A little review, you wonder, um, uh, it, it's maybe critical to review this part of a little bit, and I'm not going to go back to the specific verses, just the chapters. But in Mark chapter 3, Jesus instructs his disciples to uh, kind of procure a boat. And the reason why is, I think it's in verse 12, right in that passage where 
Jesus says, uh, the crowds are getting big, they're, cru- they're pushing in against Jesus. He says, hey, you guys might want to get a boat, that way we don't get crushed. And, uh, and, and in reality then, through all of chapter 4, uh, Jesus is then teaching and preaching. And in Mark chapter 4, he, he preaches through a variety of parables. The parable of the sower, and then he gives an explanation. The parable of, of light, of the light. Uh, don't hide it under a, a bushel. Uh, the parable of the growing seed. The parable of the mustard seed. All of these, all of these different parables that Jesus was explaining the kingdom uh, of God about, he was using and he was standing in this boat. So in, in reality, he had a floating. He had a floating. This, I will guarantee you that this is not what the boat looked like that he was in. They didn't have all the big sails and all that. But essentially, he had a floating platform, a, a floating pulpit, as it were. Oh, that boat's out of the water. I don't think those boats could go that fast to get out of the water. Anyway, he had this floating pulpit that he was teaching. And that's where we see most of the verses there in Mark chapter 4 as they had uh, set out. Then from there, then they had set out across the Sea of Galilee. Of course, what we looked at a few weeks ago, this violent storm came up so bad that they were nearly capsized. The guys were bailing water out. They wake up Jesus, who then calms the storm, sim- sim- calms the storm simply by just saying a word, just saying, "Just peace, be still," and everything just shut down immediately. And and we all know that weather's not that way. Like a storm will roll through this valley, and it kind of rolls through, and it rolls out to the east normally. Uh, no, when Jesus speaks to a situation. It changes immediately. We looked at that and how that impacts our lives and how he can speak to the storms in our lives and they can change. Really, this whole day, this was all took place, chapter 4, all took place just in the period of one day and that whole day was really this big teachable moment, both for his disciples and for the crowds that were listening. Then we roll into chapter 5. And Jesus had been calling his disciples, ministering to the people in that region of Galilee. And Galilee is in the north of Israel. If Michaela has or Jonathan has the map up there, it's in the north, kind of the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. And so they had set sail then from there to Capernaum. And Capernaum is uh, <coughs> on the north shore. Then now in chapter 5, it says they had came to the other side, if you're with me in Mark chapter 5. They had came to the other side of the sea. If you didn't have all that background of chapters three, through five, four, uh, 3 and 4, to get to chapter 5, you would wonder where they started from. But they set out kind of diagonally in a southeasterly fashion to the other side of the sea, it says. To the country of Gadarenes, which is to the south east side of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 2 says, And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the, met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the, among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. <clears throat> And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. 
And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Jesus speaking here, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. He also begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was in feeding near the mountains, and so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to, where, to the swine that we may enter them. At once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine, and there was about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down a steep place and into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and, sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed and, and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from the region. And when he got into the boat, and when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home and tell your friends, and tell them what the great things the Lord has done for you, and how he's had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. The east side of the Sea of Galilee was inhabited primarily by Gentiles. And if you go back to the map, if Jonathan will bring that map back up real quick, you'll see the towns to the, that are in black are, were primarily Gentile towns, uh, and the ones in the, that are in, written in red are your Jewish settlements. It's kind of important to know when you get to the bottom of the story, these were ten Greek towns, their villages, and in reality, as we've read through that story, what we've discovered is, is that Jesus had a divine appointment as he set out to see. He really had a, divine, a couple of divine appointments, uh, and we'll read a couple of them next week. But he had the divine appointment of speaking to the winds and the waves. But then his next divine appointment was, was dealing with this guy. Dealing with this guy in the state that he was in. A demon-possessed man. This is by far and away the most detailed description of a demon-possessed human that we have in all of the Bible. This gives more detail to, to what was going on. And many scholars say that in the time of Christ, the spiritual activity and the demonic realm activity was really ramped up during the gospel era, during that, that, that first century time frame. It was really elevated. But let's look at this guy's situation. We find a couple more clues out of the Gospel of Luke. But the first thing was is this man had been demon-possessed for a long time, Luke tells us in Luke 8, 27. This was not just something that just happened yesterday, and, and now he's... And the story that we read doesn't really reflect that either, that this was a lifestyle that this guy had. This was a, a situation that had been going on for some time, for a long time. The second thing is, is that the man wore no clothes and lived 
really subhuman, like a wild animal. Luke 8.27 gives us that detail as well. He lived at the cemetery. I, I don't know, verse 3 tells us that in, in Mark chapter 5. I, I don't know what you guys think, but to me, that's just weird. Like, am I the only one? Like, so this guy, this guy lives amongst the tombs. Uh, he lives at the cemetery. We would use the word cemetery. They didn't really have a cemetery. They had tombs. They had holes in the rock uh, where they laid dead people. And that's just where this guy found a home, was amongst the dead. He lived amongst the, the dead and decaying. The man had supernatural strength, verse 4 tells us. He had supernatural strength to break chains. He, he couldn't be held down. He couldn't be bound. He couldn't be controlled. Really, he lived, and my next point is, is he really lived an uncontrolled life. He lived, really lived an uncontrolled life. Uncontrollable behavior described this guy. And then, of course, he was tormented, and he was self-destructive. He was tormented and self-destructive. The word says that, that he would spend time cutting himself, which going back to the Old Testament, and I forgot to bring up the verses. I could find it for you if you wish to know, but there's places in the Old Testament where, where cutting is a real thing. It's, it's part of idol worship in the Old Testament um, where people would cut themselves to, to somehow appease their small g gods. And so this guy had that going on in his life as well. He was tormented, self-destructive. All of these are all signs of demonic influence in a person's life. And this guy was definitely, he was under the control of Satan and his demons. He was under control of Satan and his demons. In other words, in his life, hell was on the rise. If we can put it that way. And I kind of want to build a picture in our minds today of a, of a dynamic that's true for all of us all of us, is that in this guy's life, hell was coming up. What do we say, guys, uh, when we were all young and stupid and run around and rebellious? You know, what are we doing? We're out doing what? Raising hell, that's right. And I'd be the first one to thank you, mother. Obviously, was talking about me, and if she wasn't talking about me, she was talking about my older sister. But that's what we were about, right? That's, that's what all the cool guys did. That's what all the cool kids did right? Is that you just, you were out, you were partying, you were raising, and literally in this guy's life, hell is on the increase in this guy's life. Hell is on the rise, and so what's our biblical response? What's, what's, what's God's best for you in your life? What's God's best for me in my life? That hell is on the rise? You tell me. No, that's not God's best for, for you and for me. God's best for for our lives, actually, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, is the other way around. It's that heaven would come down. It's that heaven would come down. Let's look at a verse. Right out of the middle of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he says, he tells them this, where he's, as he's praying, he's instructing them this way in relationship to the Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. So all of us, all of mankind really has lived, lived life in this vertical yo-yo effect in, in some way where either in our lives, in my life, either hell was on the rise 
or heaven was coming down. Right? Either, either what the enemy was up to, what Satan was up to in my life was increasing with measure, or what God was doing and how God brings His kingdom down into my life and into your life, into all of our lives, the, God's kingdom and His principles and His ways come down into our lives and take control. This guy was the previous. Hell was on the rise in his life. Hell was on the rise in his life. The real struggle. You may be sitting here thinking that my real issues are not with God or not with the devil. My issues are horizontal with other people. But I'm here to tell you that the real significant issues in life are all vertical. They're all vertical. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves is God's principles, is God's kingdom, is His ways, are they, are they pressing down onto my life and squishing out the ways of the enemy in my life? Am I being sanctified by God's ways and by His will and the enemy's ways then fleeing out the bottom? Or, or in reality, is the enemy's ways, are they coming up and do they have a real good foothold? Do they have a real good posture in my life? We all have to ask ourselves these questions. We all have to deal with the reality of these truths that are right out of the Bible. This guy was no different. You and I are no different. No different from that principle. The real struggle for everyone really is a vertical issue. If you don't get anything else today, get that. The real issues in life are vertical issues. Either hell is on the rise or heaven is coming down. Now, <clears throat> when we say heaven is coming down, there's something particularly true about this passage and for this situation and for this story is that for this guy, heaven has come down in two ways. It's come down for this guy, and we don't know his name. All we know is he's the demon-possessed guy, right? That's all we know. Call him what you want. Call him the cemetery guy. I, it doesn't matter. But for this guy, heaven came down in two significant ways. The person of Jesus and the proclamation of Jesus. They came down in the person of Jesus and they came down in the proclamation of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, Jesus proclaims really his purpose for coming. So in, in chronologically, in Luke chapter 4, this is well before we would get to the story that we read about in Mark chapter 5. But in Luke chapter 4, Jesus proclaims the purpose for his coming, his heavenly coming down, if you will. In verse 16, I'll read there. So he came to Nazareth, Jesus he's talking about, Luke is. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and was his cust as his custom was. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Verse 18, Jesus says these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal up the brokenhearted. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and, to recover, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
The real issues of life are truly vertical, and Jesus addresses your vertical issues. He addresses my vertical issues. He addressed this guy's vertical issues. In other words, the things that he had proclaimed previous to Mark chapter 5, here out of Isaiah, he's then going to put into practice in Mark chapter 5. He had said, this is who I am, this is why God has sent me, and then he goes right to work. So we look at the different account of the gospel in the gospel of Mark, and Jesus brings freedom and liberty to the captives, and he brings healing to the broken. That's the reason for the appointment then with this guy in Mark chapter 5. This guy's life was spun completely, and I mean completely, out of control. It was spun completely out of control. And the fear that I have for, for a lot of people, and even perhaps some of us in this room, is, is that, that we would embark kind of a lifestyle, maybe not demon-possessed like this guy, but we would embark on a lifestyle that was, that was similar. There's some similarities that we can draw out of it. And that similarity is simply this, is that we would be about managing sin, not, not receiving victory over sin. That we would manage sin. We're not called. Uh, Jesus didn't come. He didn't, he didn't show us how to live. He didn't die on the cross. He didn't endure all the sufferings. He didn't, you know, wasn't buried in the, in, in the tomb and rise on the third day just so that his followers from there forth could just manage their sin. It's not about, Christianity is not about sin management. It's about having victory over sin. It's about following Christ and receiving His victory over sin. But a lot of Christians, let's be really honest in this moment, a lot of Christianity is about managing sin. It's about just like dealing with how do I manage temptation or how do, we, how, how do I get around that, you know, and how do I block this out. And, how do, and that's exactly what this guy had going on. This guy had a lot of sin management going on in his life. We treat sin like this old dog. This old dog that we used to have, his name was Butch. Uh, Butch was half German Shepherd and half Rottweiler. And he was meaner than a snake. I mean, he, and he, was, he wasn't a big, he, wasn't like, he didn't have the height of the German Shepherd. or He was a little shorter. But he was just mean. I mean, he would bite and tear and carry on. I mean, th- this dog, nobody liked to come to our house because they, they were afraid that they would get bit by Butch. And different people did. Uh, I remember real clearly as a kid trying to break up a dog fight between Butch and another dog. And uh, Katie over here, her cousin Missy, it was her dog was the other one. And Missy got bit like two or three times in the course of breaking. And this dog was just mean. He was mean. Now, we loved him. I mean, he was a great dog for us, and he didn't really bite us. Um, But Butch had to be managed. Butch had to be managed. So when somebody came over, of course, Butch had to be put on a chain, and and he would sit there and tug at the chain and bark and growl and and carry on. And uh, and my brother-in-law, my brother who was dating my older sister at the time, he just hated this dog. I mean, he really hated this dog. And so he would kind of tease and you know poke and he would go out there occasionally with a stick you know and you know poke the poke this mean dog but my brother-in-law always said and he never did this I, i'm kind of glad he didn't do it but he had always kind of threatened i just hate that dog he says one of these days he says i'm gonna stuff some uh some burlap bags in the wheels of my tires or in my wheels you know so when that dog goes because the dog would always bite the tires of the car 
He goes, maybe that'll keep him from biting my... If you get a picture of what would happen if a dog would bite a burlap sack while a wheel's spinning, are you guys with me? Everybody awake? Was it a long night last night? Anyway, he never did that trick. I'm not into animal cruelty, uh, and neither was he really. But he really didn't like that dog, and that dog had to be managed. He had to be managed. A lot of times we treat our sin that way, where we have to just manage our sin. We kind of hook it to a chain when certain people are around, you know, or we cage it up when people might be over. Uh, we, we try to k- somehow kind of throw a corral around our sin in, in a way so it, it looks good or somebody else doesn't get hurt, somebody doesn't get injured. And uh, it's that story about that dog, which he really was truly my favorite dog in a lot of ways because <coughs> as a kid, he was super strong too. So as a kid, uh, this is not my nose, but I was thinking about this time of year was a great time to have that dog because you could hook a leash to his collar and hook the other end of the, the leash to a runner sled let me tell you what, you had, a, you had a one dog wrecking crew going out there. We had a long, straight driveway, so uh, he was a lot of fun. He was our pre-snowmobile snowmobile. You guys want to know what happened to Butch? There was one occasion where we found Butch. At the very end, our management didn't uh, pan out because we came home from a basketball game and found Butch out in the ditch. And all you see was his hindquarters because he tra- chased the snowplow for the last time and ended up in the snowbank. Which, uh, which is, I guess, the way it went for Butch. I'm trying to think, you know, I guess we can draw a lot of parallels actually to our sin and to the issues in our life because what happens is just like Butch ended up in the snowbank, that's the way it goes for us when we manage our sin or don't manage it. And this guy that we're reading about in Mark chapter 5, his life consisted of essentially trying to manage his sin. Look at Mark chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 for the explanation of why I say that his sin is just being managed. It says there in verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs. Okay, so he lived in the tomb. And then it says this little phrase, no one could bind him, not even with chains. Nobody can bind him even with chains. And so not only was he have to like self-manage his issues, but the people around him were there to kind of help him manage his issues and not really find victory. They just, they just thought the best way to handle this guy is just to lock him up. And the reality was is the demons that were in this guy were stronger than the chains. So it didn't work. Bound with shackles and chains, it says, and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles were broken to pieces. And then this little phrase at the end of verse 4, neither could anyone tame him. Neither could anyone tame him. And so he, in his own way then, removed himself, lived away from society, lived isolated. It's the only way that he could manage the demonic influence that was in his life. Then, of course, this demon-possessed man then gets hit by the Jesus train, so to speak. Look at his response when he sees Jesus from afar. It says, when he saw Jesus from afar, verse 6 is where I'm at, he ran and worshipped him. 
When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he worshiped him. See, deliverance from the demonic, there's kind of three components for this guy. There's the seeing, the running, and the worshiping. He saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. He ran to Jesus, and he worshiped Jesus. All three of these actions are singular in their focus. And they're singular in their focus as this guy uh, uh, saw the Savior for the first time. So he runs to him. He worships him. When we see Jesus for who he says he is, when we run to Jesus instead of running to other comforts, and when we worship Jesus alone and renounce our dependency on other sources of provision, that's when Jesus steps in to give freedom. That's when Jesus steps in and brings freedom and peace and victory into our lives. It's also kind of when the fight's on. What do I mean by that? Notice verse 7. Look back at verse 7. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Now I'm under the assumption that in verse, the previous verses that it was this guy's actions that were running to meet Jesus. But by the time we get to verse 7, the demonic in him had kind of taken over. The demonic in him had kind of taken over. How do we know that? How do we understand that? Well, the <clears throat> demon that was possessing this guy was the one that wasn't given up without a fight. And there's four tactics of the enemy that we can see here in Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. And the first tactic is, is the use of Jesus' full title. The use of the first of a full title there in verse 7. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. This was the demons crying out from within this guy, taking over his body, yelling out. And, and that comes from the idea that, that a demon would use, or somebody would say, uh, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, use a full title, is this idea. It's a, it's a first century superstition. Uh, let's be honest, it's still being used today. But it's a first century superstition that if, that if somebody used your full name, that then they had power over you. And so the demons within this guy, that's their first, that's their first impulse. That's their first, that's their first attempt. That's their first shot fired was to use Jesus' full title. Now, what do I mean that it's still used today? Well, I'll tell you, when I was an ornery little kid, you know what I heard? Mark Allen Hopkins. Woof. My full name. Let me tell you what, my back got straight, come to attention, turned my head in the right direction, hopefully. Right? And it's true for all of us. And it's true of you as a parent. That when you use somebody's full name, there's a sense in which you're exercising some authority. And that's what the demons were trying to do with Jesus. They were trying to exercise some sort of authority and put themselves up and above and over on top of him. The demon knew the true identity of Jesus. And here's an interesting thought about this. Not only did he know the true identity of Jesus, but he had the right theological facts. Jesus is son of the most high God. So this demon had the right theology. He had the right components in play. Right? Am I wrong? 
Is Jesus not the son of the most high God? Of course he is. He knew the right theology, but was not surrendered or serving Jesus. That's the difference. The second tactic that's used here is one to avoid and avoid and isolate, verse 7. Avoid and isolate, verse 7. The next phrase, I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Why would he say that to Jesus? Why would the demon say, Jesus, don't torment me? I'll tell you why. Is because isolation, isolation was what he was fearing that Jesus would do. That somehow this demon would be, or demons would be isolated. It's ironic that the number one tool of Satan is to isolate people. All the while, the demonic realm hates to be isolated. And essentially, that's torment to them. To, to be kicked out of somebody's life, to, to, to lose their grip on a person, which was going to happen in this story, we've already read it, was their number one fear. It's what they didn't want. It meant that they were ineffective. It meant that they couldn't pull off their game plan. For them, isolation means being ineffective. And if they're isolated, that means that they can't be in the killing, stealing, and destroying business that we read about in John chapter 10. That's the enemy's whole goal, to kill, steal, and destroy all that he can. The, fourth, the third tactic, third of the fourth of four tactics, is to intimidate them by numbers. When Jesus says, what is your name? He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. There's an age-old trick here that's being played that that uh, to appear bigger than you are is uh, intimidating for the person that you're talking to. You know, and, and, and guys, we're kind of used to that, right? Like everybody, you know, you always, I mean, growing up, it was all the kids that were, you know, puff out their chest and, you know, uh, shoulders back and, and act big and strong. And in reality, they were probably weaker than most. Just they had a way of going about themselves. It's the same trick that's going on here. The same tactic of the enemy is to intimidate by numbers. How many times have we been fooled into thinking that our problems are bigger than Jesus? That's the question I write in my notes. How many times have I been fooled thinking, hey, you know what, my problems are really bigger than what Jesus can handle. So, so, and, and there's more of them than what Jesus can handle. And so I just kind of stay in either a self-medicating role or, or you know, somehow try to just cope and, and get along and, and don't really allow God to deal with my deeper issues. There is nothing out there. There is nothing out there that Jesus can't handle. He is not intimidated by numbers at all. He was not intimidated in this moment right here in Mark chapter 5. And he's not intimidated by whatever your issue is or what your issues are or what my issues are. He's not intimidated in the least. In fact, I will go beyond that and say he wants to heal your struggles. He wants to deal with your issues so that you don't manage your sin. And he wants to bring victory into your life. He wants to bring victory into my life. And so he desires to do that. He's not intimidated even though it's a tactic of the enemy to intimidate by numbers, Jesus is not intimidated. Don't be fooled into thinking that your problems or my problems are bigger than what Jesus can handle. I'll be honest with you, I, <coughs> I hear it a lot. 
I hear the intimidation in comments frequently. And what it sounds like is it sounds like this. Well, I'm just afraid that, you know, dealing with whatever and the effect that it's going to have on other people. That it's somehow it's going to have such a massive, devastating effect on people around, you know, whoever, that, that it's going to do more damage than Jesus is good. Well, that's not what we just read about in Mark chapter 5, is it? That's not the way that Jesus operates. That somehow that, that we confess our sins, that we put them out there to Jesus. He comes in and forgives us of our sins and deals with our sin instead of just managing it. And then all of a sudden, when the walk away is, is there's a bigger mess than there was when you started. That's not how Jesus operates. But that's the fear that goes on. That's the intimidation that goes on in our minds when we're locked into just like, well, it's, it's just always been that way. I've just always been that way. You know, all the excuses, all the cop-outs, they're all there for us to enjoy and to grab onto. I would implore all of us to leave them alone and to allow God to deal with it. He's not intimidated. Jesus is not intimidated by the situation in your life because he wasn't intimidated by this guy's situation. The fourth tactic, the fourth tactic of the enemy, I, was, I tried to find a figure out a way that to phrase this, and, and I guess I came up with this idea. The fourth tactic there in verse 12 is to destroy what you can. The fourth tactic of the enemy then is to destroy what you can. Verse 12, so all the demons begged him, saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. Luke tells us that in the Gospel of Luke, his account, he tells us that they pleaded to not be thrown into the abyss. Now, it's interesting, if you've been doing the chronological read, you, you get to the latter, verses, or latter chapters in the book of Revelation, it talks about the abyss. And so these guys knew what was ahead of them if they didn't find a host somewhere else, if they didn't find a, an out somewhere else, that it was going to go from bad to worse for them. Jesus gave them permission, of course, to enter this herd of swine who then rushed like a herd of buffalo over the cliff. They will destroy what they can as much as possible. Now, the great news is we're ahead of schedule. Or maybe we should say we're catching up with schedule. And also that this isn't the end of the story. The end of the story does not end with just, uh, okay, Jesus just wants, doesn't want you to manage your sin. That's not the end. That is part of the story, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is a beautiful picture where Jesus is parting out instructions here for this guy and I believe that these instructions have a broad application for all of us as well they have a broad application for all of us as well pick it up in verse 18 and when he got into the boat speaking of Jesus Jesus and his disciples they're going to actually get back into the boat they're going to set sail we'll read about that next week head back over to the other side of Sea of Galilee. But when he got back into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Now let me ask you, is this a good request or a bad request? It's not a trick question. It's a good request, right? Like, like who, here, who here wants to spend more time with the Lord? All of us, right? We would all say, hey, that would be me. Like if I was in those shoes, I would do the same thing. 
Hey, let me go with you. Let me be one of your disciples. Let me be one of your followers. I just want to spend more time with you. I've spent my whole life, perhaps, maybe not his whole life, but a good share of his life, a good share of his life has been locked up in sin and shame, living amongst the dead and the decaying, being ostracized from the community, being an outcast, being the, being the, the object of scorn and ridicule, being the object of the community trying to manage this guy's issues so it didn't affect them. So who wouldn't want to get in the boat and go somewhere else? We all would. We all would. We're all prone in, in, in that sense. That we actually feel freedom for the first time. And we actually experience freedom for the full t- first time. That I just want more of that. So this is a great request. This is a great posture that this guy has. He wants to be with Jesus. He wants to go with Jesus. And verse 19 then stands out in stark contrast to that. Where it says, however, Jesus did not permit him. But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. Go home and tell your people. Go home and demonstrate what God has done in your life. Go home and, 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 and in a sense, you are then a representation of Christ in your community. You are a representation then, he says to this guy, and he's really saying this to all of us, you are a representation of what God can do when he sets people free. And that's true for you, it's true for me, and something that's true for all believers. And I think it's something that we often don't think about, we often don't express, we often don't share as much as we could. But I'll tell you, when you bump into people that do, when you bump into people that their freedom story is the first thing on their lips and, and is displayed in their life, it really stands out. It really stands out. When you see that what God has done in somebody's life, or, or maybe that's you, you're just a person you just can't stop talking about it. You can't stop bringing it up. Jesus is really commissioning, in a sense, the first missionary right here in verse 19. Go home. Tell your friends the great things that the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. He doesn't tell this guy to manage anything. He just gives him the inspiration to go and share the story. Demonstrate the proof. I think of David after, after he takes down Goliath. And, and oftentimes the story's cut short in my mind a lot and I think a lot... In, 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 a, in a lot of times when this story is shared uh, out of the Old Testament, what did David do? He kills Goliath. He goes up there, scrawny teenage, runny kid, grabs his sword, grabs Goliath's sword, which was massive, cuts his head off of this giant, and then he goes on a tour with the head, parading it around the countryside. In other words, he's going around and he's saying to everybody in Israel, look what God has done. Look what God has done. He's taken our number one enemy, Goliath, and the Philistines. Now they're on the run. I have his head. Here's proof. Don't mind the flies. Right? Somebody's got to laugh at my jokes once in a while. We talked before the service about my really poor joke-making ability. 
and uh, I'm still working on that. And I've, I've, I've come to this comfortable point in the fact that most of my jokes in and of themselves are not funny. It's the poor delivery that's funny. So I, I'm getting good with that. Tim's coaching me up a little bit because he's actually super funny. Uh, but the reality is, is that's what David was doing. That's what David was doing. David was doing exactly what this guy in Mark chapter 5 was doing. He was going around the countryside and saying, holding it up, giving the sign of victory and freedom. David was, that sign for David was Goliath's head. This guy's sign was his new life. It was his new life. He wasn't the old guy before. He wasn't the old guy. Here's what it boils down to. This guy, the demon-possessed guy, his identity changed. His identity changed. One thing I wish, one of my questions for John Mark, why didn't you give us the guy's name so we'd know like, who we're dealing with here? His identity had changed. He was no, we can't now call him his friends, his neighbors, his family, his community, they couldn't now call him the demon-possessed guy. His whole identity had changed. It's totally different. Go and tell them the great things that the Lord has done for you and how he's had compassion on you. I guess we could call him the great things guy. The compassion guy. And he departed and began, verse 20, he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. All marveled. Now back to our map. That area was primarily Gentile in makeup. Not completely, but primarily. These were ten Greek towns scattered mostly on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. This guy, in a sense, who always think, you know, well, the Apostle Paul is the missionary to the Gentiles. But in a sense, this guy was a missionary to a Gentiles long before the Apostle Paul. Because he just simply went out and shared the message. How do we know that he shared the message? <coughs> Excuse me. Because everybody was amazed that this guy's life was so much different. Everybody was amazed that this guy's life was so much different. They, they couldn't help but marvel. They couldn't help but turn their head and take note. They couldn't help but, but come to their feet and say, wow, what is that? Is that the demon-possessed guy? He ain't that way anymore. It's not the guy that used to manage his sin. He's not the guy that the community used to manage his situation. This is obviously and unequivocally a guy that's been set free. That same freedom is the freedom that Jesus has for everybody. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how big or small you think your situation is. It doesn't matter how big or small you think your problems or your, your sin habits are. In fact, I fear oftentimes that it's the simplest things or the things that are going to trip us up the worst because they're the things that we just think that we, oh, it's okay, Jesus, I got this one. It's not a big deal, right? It's a big deal. Those small things are a huge deal 
Because any sin, the Bible says, separates us from the Lord. Any sin puts us off the mark of perfection that is required for you and I to spend eternity with Christ. Any sin. Big, small, doesn't matter. Could be a piece of candy from the store in Addy from all those years ago. Could be the smallest thing. A piece of candy that was stolen, I should preface the whole story. Could be the smallest thing, but still sinful in God's eyes until it's confessed and repented of. Until Christ has a chance to forgive and deal with that. Don't underestimate what Jesus can do. The worship team wants to come on up. Jesus brings deliverance and healing to the broken so that the broken can then testify of the good news of the gospel of Christ. And Jesus has rescued this guy. I've said now for quite a few weeks that that really the storyline of the Bible, the, 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 the summary of the whole Bible is Jesus saves. It's a massive rescue story of how God uh, creates a perfect world that then is marred by sin and how God brings a rescue back to restore all that was broken, all that was defiled, all that was messed up. And Jesus is that rescuer. Don't underestimate what he can do in your life. Don't cast it off as just some you know, uh, religious saying, you know, some cutesy little, you know, Christian easy thing that we always say, and, but we don't embrace. Embrace it. Embrace it. Run to him, see him, run to him, and worship Christ. Would you rise as we close with a couple of worship songs?